It is the second week, second Sunday of Advent, and last week we, we started our Advent series over the, the four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas. We're, we're looking at the four names of Jesus, uh, four names uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6 that are prophesied that the Messiah would be called. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I want to just give a quick recap of the context of, of Isaiah chapter 9. So in Isaiah chapter 8, we see that, that God foretold that a world power, Assyria, would come against the northern nation of Israel. They would invade the nation and they would bring great uh, suffering uh, upon the people. And and as we might expect, due to the Assyrians in, being in the north and invading from the north, that it was the tribes who lived in the northernmost part of Israel who would feel the brunt of that invasion. But even in the face of such suffering, God prophesied through Isaiah that from those northern areas, a child would be born a son would be given who would bring light out of darkness and establish his kingdom. And so then famously in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah proclaimed that this child would be known by, by these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we spent last week talking about the first name, Wonderful Counselor. God's wonder is seen in his creation. It's seen in his works. It's seen in the incarnation, which we focus upon intently during the Christmas season. We talked about all of that last week. And then as a result of God's unparalleled wonder, he alone is uniquely qualified to be our counselor. And, and we talked last week as well that, that we have a definite need for a counselor. And through his example for us, his words to us, his spirit dwelling within us, we are given that direction and that instruction that we need. So that, was, that is this child to be born, wonderful counselor. This week, we focus on the second name in that list, Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, I wanted to start by telling you a story from my days as associate pastor here at EBC. Uh, the phone rang at the church one afternoon, and when I answered the phone, the person on the other end of the line asked if they could speak to a Bible teacher. Um, pastor Tom wasn't in the office that afternoon, so uh, I don't know, maybe sensing an opportunity to, to flex my theological chops a little bit, I, I confidently said, I can talk to you. Um, and any, any, any smile on my face probably quickly faded as, as I soon realized this was a phone call from a man who was a Jehovah's Witness. And his question regarding the divinity of Jesus wasn't a genuine question seeking an answer, but an attempt to prove me wrong in my response to him. Uh, uh, one of the key beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jesus is not fully divine. 
they, they believe Jesus to be the first and highest created being. And so the man on the phone challenged me with this belief and stated that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. He, he, he argued that nowhere does Jesus say, I am God. Now, even though you don't find Jesus speaking that exact English phrase in the Gospels, it doesn't mean that he didn't claim to be God. And, and upon hearing the statement from this man, my, my thoughts immediately went to John's Gospel. Over and over again, John records statements which Jesus makes about his divinity. And there's two that I think are especially clear. In John chapter 8, the people tried to accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Uh, I mean, after all, Jesus claimed to be able to offer eternal life, and so the only rational explanation that the people could come up with is, well, he must be speaking those words under the influence of a demon. Why, why else would a man say that kind of thing? Um, it would say even Abraham, the great Abraham, even he died. To which Jesus replied, before Abraham was, I am. Now, now the, the name I am, that's the name God revealed to Moses as he spoke with him in the burning bush. I am who I am. So to claim to be I am is an unmistakable claim to divinity. And we know that the people heard Jesus' statement in that way because immediately after, they, after he said that, they picked up stones to stone him. They would not have done that unless they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God and in their mind making a blasphemous statement. So there's that. Another example is from John chapter 10, which Pastor Tim read for us earlier. Jesus was in, the, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple during the Feast of Dedication or during Hanukkah. And, and due to the previous statements that he'd already made, the people were asking, well, if you're, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Tell us plainly. And Jesus responded by, by stating that, that he's the shepherd who gives eternal life to his sheep. And he then ended his statement in uh, verse 30 by saying, I and the Father are one. And yet again... We know that the people understood this to be a claim of divinity because they, again, picked up stones and intended to kill Jesus. And this time, John records their response to Jesus. So there, there's really no confusion. There's not even any interpretation here. The crowd tells us, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. There's no question the people understood clearly Jesus' statement, claiming to be God. So in those two situations and others, Jesus not only made clear statements about being divine, but the people present with him understood what he was saying in that way. So to wrap up my story about the Jehovah's Witness, you know, after, after a decent amount of time going uh, back and forth over the phone, it was clear to me that this man on the, on the other end was probably a professor or, or, or a, a pastor of some kind. 
because his knowledge about the Jehovah's Witness uh, own translation of the Bible was quite extensive. And, and after a while, I, I, I simply noted to him that uh, neither one of us was going to convince the other one of uh, their belief, and so we probably should just call the conversation good. And I don't know if he felt like he won since I tapped out first. I, I, I don't know, but, but uh, I, I at least won something in that because I came away from that discussion even more convinced that the arguments which seek to attempt to poke holes in the divinity of Jesus just don't hold water. Uh, they just don't. I, I mean, you can't find a single New Testament writer who doesn't either make a claim, a clear statement about Jesus' divinity, or record Jesus making a clear statement about his own divinity. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes the prophecy of Isaiah, which said that the son born to the virgin would be called Emmanuel, God with us. In Mark chapter 2, the story is recorded where a paralytic man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus forgave his sins, something only God himself can do. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, the angel told Mary that her child would be called the Son of God. Um, John, the statements that we've just uh, looked at, uh, as well as saying that Jesus is the Word who is God, Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, he states, Jesus is the fullness of God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, whoever he is exactly, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Uh, James calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Peter speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, even Jude, I mean, the author of an entire 25 verses, Jude even repeatedly calls Jesus Lord and states that the Lord will come with 10,000 of his holy ones. I, the only way to come away from the New Testament, believing that Jesus is not presented as fully divine, is to shut your eyes and plug your ears and just, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. I mean, that, that's the only way to read the New Testament. And I'm not saying you have to believe it, but to at least understand the claims that are being made. What Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 about the Son being the mighty God is fully supported throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus is divine. And just like in our discussion last week, we, we talked about how the word wonderful described the word counselor. Uh, it's the same this week. We'll see today that there is a word mighty, which describes for us just what kind of God this prophesied son would be. And so if you think back to the context of Isaiah's prophecy, it's not inconsequential that this son would, to be born would be the mighty God. We can't forget that the powerful Assyrian army had northern Israel in its crosshairs. And when the Assyrian army besieged Jerusalem in southern Judah in 701 BC, we're told in 2 Kings 19 that there were 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were there and consequently died because of the work of the Lord, but 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So so while we don't know the exact size of the army 20 years before that up in northern Israel, 
I think we have an idea of the potential of the size. This is a serious threat. A mighty act by a mighty being was needed. And so a couple verses before uh, Isaiah 9, 6, we're given a prophecy about the might that would be displayed among God's people. So I'll read for you verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 9. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his oppressor, the, rod, uh, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the mention of Midian refers back to uh, Gideon's defeat of Midian in Judges chapter 7. And if you remember that story, it's the story where God whittled Gideon's army from 32,000 men down to 300. So less than 1% of the original number. And yet, due to God's mighty power, working through those 300 men, they were able to soundly defeat the Midian army which opposed them. So when God decreased the size of Gideon's army down to 300 men, he left no doubt as to the source of their victory. It, it wasn't the might of the men. It couldn't have been. It was the might of God working through the men that they found victory. And so Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 4, that the victory to come will be like the victory over Midian. The, the child to be born will rightly be called mighty God because his might will be displayed in their deliverance. Now we can see, right, why many in Jesus' day thought that the Messiah, the prophesied son, would be a military leader who would bring military victory. Uh, I mean, we can see the connection there. But Jesus' power and his might were, were not seen in that manner during his life. Uh, instead, the New Testament writers speak about Jesus' might, but it's displayed in other ways. So one example of the might of Jesus is creation. Right? I mean, it, it can kind of bend our minds to think about Jesus being involved in creation, right? The, the, the baby boy who was born as an infant, born into a specific point in history, actually possesses the power responsible for all of creation. And, and not just possesses it, but, but was actively at work bringing about creation. And so I, I, um, I mentioned Colossians chapter 1 already. That's the famous passage where Paul speaks about Jesus' activity in creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, all things created through him and for him, all things hold together in him. It got me thinking, I, have you ever wondered how much energy is required to create a star? The energy and power that's needed there? I, I don't know. I was thinking about this, and since it's 2022, I Googled it. I thought, maybe Google knows. And it, I found a recipe for creating a star, believe it or not. So, so if you want to create a star... You need to start with a hollow spherical plastic capsule two millimeters in diameter. So, you know, tiny. Okay. And then you need to fill that two millimeter wide capsule with 150 micrograms of a mixture of deuterium and tritium, the two heavy isotopes of hydrogen. You probably, you probably have those at home, right? Maybe. 
I bet you could find them in that aisle in Aldi where they just have all the random stuff. Like, but anyway, so you need 150 micrograms of that. And here's, here's, the, here's what I really want us to take note of. You need a laser that for about 20 billionths of one second can generate 500 trillion watts. So the equivalent of 5 trillion 100 watt light bulbs is, is the, the, the power of the laser that you need. And if you do everything correctly, you'll have a star that will last for a tiny fraction of a second. I mean, a 500 trillion watt laser can produce a tiny star that lasts for less than one second. Think about that the next time you're outside at night and you look up in the sky and you see the stars, the innumerable stars that are so much bigger than just a tiny little thing, right? Oh, and, and that Jesus created those out of nothing, by the way. Didn't go to that aisle at all. I mean, out of nothing. I mean, you want to talk about might. There it is. I mean, we see it in creation. It's safe to say that, that our simple minds are just not capable of fully grasping the incredible might of the Son of God on display in creation. But that's just one area where we see God's might. And the New Testament writers talk about that. But we also see his might displayed through the miracles which Jesus performed. Um, take Luke 8, for example. I'd, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 8. So in the beginning of the chapter, uh, there's parables that Jesus tells. And then in verse 22 of Luke 8, we're told that Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples. And so they're, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and a furious windstorm comes upon them. A storm so violent that seasoned fishermen are concerned for their lives. So we know it's a legitimate storm. And Jesus, who's sleeping in the boat, wakes up, speaks to the wind, and immediately it becomes calm. A storm of incredible power is no match for Jesus. And then after that mighty display, the boat lands in a Gentile country. And Jesus and his disciples are welcomed by a demon-possessed man who was known to break free from chains and shackles because of the strength of the demons within him. And this man then comes before Jesus, not in a, a prideful, threatening way because of his strength, but falling at Jesus' feet, begging Jesus not to torment him. And Jesus then proceeds to display his mighty power over demonic oppression by setting that man free. So then they get back into the boat, go back to the Jewish side of the lake, where Jesus is confronted with a situation where a 12-year-old girl is sick and on the verge of death. And Jesus went to see her, but before arriving, she died. And so then the question is, well, well has, has he finally found a situation in which his power is just not mighty enough? And, and it's not in the slightest. Upon arriving at the house, Jesus promptly restored life to her dead body. This is just Luke chapter 8. It is an up-close and personal display of the mighty power of the divine Son of God. His might and power over the created world, over the spiritual world, and death itself is, is unparalleled. 
So the New Testament communicates that to us. We see his, we see his might in creation, the miracles of Jesus, but, but for as great as all those displays are, we haven't even gotten to the greatest display of his might. The pinnacle of Jesus' mighty power is seen in his own resurrection from the dead. And this is how, uh, this is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 1. He says it this way, chapter 1, verse 19. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God's power is ultimately seen through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, and, and it, his was a resurrection that didn't just delay death until a later date, but a resurrection that persists in eternal life, death being fully defeated for all time. And it, and it wasn't like... It wasn't like Jesus himself had finally been defeated, and so he needed his heavenly Father to come bail him out by raising him from the dead. I mean, listen to Jesus' own statements about his role in his own resurrection. This first one is John chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then in chapter 10, right before what we read earlier, Jesus says, uh, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it was Jesus' own power that resurrected himself from the dead. As I was preparing this sermon, the, the words of that simple praise chorus kind of kept coming back to me. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And then as that was in my head, I thought, you know, what a great song that prompts reflection upon the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, right? The song talks about angels, angels being present at his birth, singing his praises in the night sky. Um, the shepherds, the wise men, both going to see him and, and, and adore him. Um, you know, a, a little infant boy, um, in, in, in some ways so helpless in his mother's arms was the source of the mighty power that has garnered worship and praise throughout the centuries. I mean, there's a great paradox in, in some ways in thinking about how such a small infant could rightly be called by a name that possesses such grandeur, mighty God. And you think about, you know, when, when, the, when the wise men arrived, whether Jesus was still an infant, whether he was a toddler by that point, it doesn't really matter. They, they rightly fell down and worshipped Jesus. 
They offered him gifts that, that surely required great sacrifice on their part. Um, and, and it was all in response to the mighty God who had been born the king of the Jews. So I think, I think it just it, it prompts us to, to ask ourselves, do we rightly live as though Jesus is the mighty God? Do we, do we fall down and worship before him? Do we offer him gifts that are sacrificial in nature? That would, that would be the proper response for us, even if there was nothing else to proclaim other than Jesus' uh, power in creation, power seen in miracles, power over death. Even if that was it, that's enough to praise Jesus. But there's, there's more. There's more than that. We haven't yet spoken of another way in which God's mighty power is shown. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 3 of how the power of God is seen in our individual lives. So in Ephesians 3 verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I mean, it turns out there are quite a few ways in which Jesus' mighty power is seen in the lives of his children. Paul talks about him dwelling within us through his Holy Spirit. And you know, that this indwelling would not take place were it not for the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. We know from the Old Testament that God's spirit only dwelled in the most holy place of the temple, that, that place that was separated by a curtain from sinful humanity and, and the sinful world outside of it. So, and only after extensive cleansing of the high priest could he enter into God's presence. And then as the result then for us, as a result of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus and having his righteousness imputed upon us, we are now fit to be a dwelling place of the mighty God. There's great power at work in that. And Paul also says that, that, that uh, through the power of God, we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And the logic of that statement seems a bit strange, right? That we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? I mean, I, how can a person have knowledge of something that surpasses knowledge? It seems like a contradiction. And apart from the mighty power of God, that probably would be a contradiction. But when our mighty God is at work, what was previously unknowable becomes knowable to us. The love of God that we cannot grasp under our own effort becomes knowable as we receive him in faith and, and as, as he dwells within us. 
apart from God's work within us, the, uh, the love displayed on the cross looks like utter foolishness. But in the presence of God's work within us, his power working within us, the, the loving work on the cross is seen to be the glorious wisdom of God in action. Our mighty God causes us to know his love that surpasses knowledge. And then I, I love how Paul wraps up chapter 3. The mighty power of Jesus is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. I don't know if Paul realized he was going to have to write a really long list if he kept talking about the power of God and just says, well, it, it covers everything. It's almost a catch-all at the end. You know, it, it's, it's impossible to describe all the ways in which God's mighty power is at work, so it's far more than we can imagine. That, that ought to cover it, right? Uh, man, I, it's... The mighty power of God is at work, not just in creation-wide types of ways. I mean, it is that through creation and miracles, and, 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 uh, and, yeah. but, it, but it's at work in, in our individual lives as well. He's transforming us and working through us in ways that are only possible because he is the mighty God. And so I think about that, you know, we, we are, we're blessed this morning to be given a tangible picture of the mighty work of Jesus in the life of an individual. And so in just a moment, we get to be a witness of the baptism of Drew Metcalf. And, and before he's baptized, he's going to share his testimony, his personal testimony, and speak of the ways in which God has been working in his individual life. But I do want to highlight how, how baptism itself displays the work of God in the lives of, of all followers of Jesus through the centuries. The, the fact that baptism is done with water is a symbol of the cleansing that takes place in a person's life. You know, j just how water is uh, used to cleanse so many things the blood of Jesus shed on the cross cleanses us of our sins. We're made pure by the sacrifice of Jesus, his power at work in that way. And then in addition, the, the, the going under the water and coming back out of the water is a symbol of death to our old way of life and rebirth to uh, the new way of life that we are given, rebirth to new life in Jesus. The old sinful nature within us has been defeated and put to death by the power of God, and then equally by the power of God, we are given new life. We are, we are made a new creation in Jesus. And you know, it's, it, it's quite fitting. Uh, uh, we've had Drew's uh, baptism on the calendar for, I don't know, a month or more now, and I just realized earlier this week that it's also his birthday today, his biological birthday. Um, on purpose, I found out that the, it was picked for today, but um, this, is the, this is the very day that his physical birth took place, and after today, this day will also be marked as the day in which he took part in the baptism, which symbolizes his spiritual birth, his, his new life in Jesus. Now, 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 Drew doesn't participate in baptism this morning because he accomplished his cleansing or, or his rebirth under his own power. It's, 
contrary to that, he is proclaiming publicly that by the power of the mighty God at work in his life, he is a new creation. So we get to celebrate that together, and we get to witness that together this morning as well. Um, so Drew, Drew already went back. He's getting ready. If you'll give me just a moment, I'll do the same. Um, we'll get the pulpit out of the way so that uh, nobody's view is, ob- is obstructed, and then we'll celebrate together God's work um, in and through Drew.